que es un fantasma. Un evento terrible condenado a repetirse una y otra vez. Welcome back to another episode of March Mad Men, the show that is endeavoring to find the greatest horror film ever made. And this season, of course, it's all about haunted house movies. We are deep into the Sinister 16 here, and we've got some pretty cool films to discuss tonight. I'm looking forward to it. Of course, I'm John Evans, and my co-hosts, as always, are screenwriter Vikram Wheat, and TV producer Rich Eckersley. Gentlemen, I hope you're ready to rock. Vic, how you doing tonight, buddy? John, I'm doing pretty well, all things being equal. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about these movies in particular, and I really feel like in this process that I am starting to really rediscover my love of horror films because for many years I was just inundated with sort of kids movies and then when the kids were asleep I was with my wife who's not the biggest horror film fan uh, and so this is a lot of this is just stuff that I feel like I kind of passed out of my out of my life a little bit and since we started doing this and really getting into the the thick of it and and thinking about what makes a great horror film I found myself not just watching these movies but then when I have a little time going, shit, I, I, you know, I never finished The Ritual on Netflix. Let me go. I want to check that out. Or I watched a Korean film called Monstrum that was fantastic. Well, that was very good. I won't say it was fantastic because my, my tastes are getting increasingly refined as we, as we get through this. And so uh, there is just I'm, – I'm rediscovering the joy of watching these movies, and I hope that, I hope that everybody is. I hope the people who are, who are listening along and hopefully watching along with us are, are getting some of that same pleasure and joy out of this. It's a fun fucking thing to do to sit around and watch horror movies and then to, to get to talk about them with people that are passionate about them too. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, Vic, because we haven't really talked about it on, on mic that much. But, you know, obviously we're hoping that everyone listening, I mean, if you're still with us at this point, um, and, you know, I'm taking for granted that you've listened to episodes in chronological order. If you're not somehow, please go back and, and start at the beginning. <laughs> um, I hope you're on this journey with us. And if, if it initially you hadn't seen these movies by this point in the process, we really hope you have, and obviously, you know, we have spoilers at this point in the process, a few rounds deep into our tournament, and uh, I hope that we're all talking about about scenes and moments and highs and lows that we've shared together, and that's something that I think is part of the fun thing as we go so deep. I mean, we're just beyond the rabbit hole here. We are on the other side of the looking glass, completely immersed in this subgenre of horror films. And as you said, yeah, like just the process Vic, of it, it is kind of a calling trying to find the, the greatest, you know, find the best of anything, whether it's wine or cars or literature, or poetry, 
or haunted house movies. You know, there's, there's something kind of elevated about that pursuit. And hopefully, you know, we're going to reach some pretty interesting conclusions here. And I think it's already been a hell of a journey. Uh, Rich, how's your journey going these days? My journey is going pretty good. Vic, I'm, I'm impressed that you have time to watch any other movies that aren't haunted house movies. You know, this is a, uh, this is quite an undertaking as you allude to. It's, it's an enjoyable undertaking, but it is a, a massive undertaking. And I want the audience to feel for us. I want sympathy, maybe gifts. I, this is a lot of work. <laughs> I feel like we could be better compensated by the public. Yeah. Uh, there's no other of course. But uh, John will, uh, will send out the address on the Facebook page after the podcast. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm good. I was actually – I was thinking even before we got on this podcast, I was thinking about why I look forward to doing this. My wife is certainly mystified as to why we spend the time doing this that we do, not just recording but also going back through and watching all the films. And, and there is something to be said for – Horror does not get enough credit for being the artful escapism that it really can be. And especially in times like these, you are looking at these stories of of fear and violence and, and hauntings, and somehow it makes you feel a little better. It takes you to a different place where things maybe in many ways are worse, but but somehow gives you that that break from the, the epic grind of this current moment in time, and really lets you fall into another world. And that's what all these movies do. I feel like they really all have the attention to detail and the nuance and the atmosphere and stories that just suck you in. So I'm excited to break them down. On that note, I think that's a good time for me to do this. Oh, yeah. That, gentlemen, is a simpler times. And I, I feel like that's what, that's what we could all use right now. If you'd like to send Vic a case of simpler times, Vic is going to be sending out his address out to the podcast post. Wait, wait, wait. Simpler times is, is pretty inexpensive. If you're going to send me something, <laughs> I'd prefer a, a bourbon barrel quad from Boulevard, maybe, or a, a St. Bernardus 12. Uh, well, well, just t- hit me up. How about you start with uh, giving us a nice review on whatever platform you're using to listen to the show? Yeah, hit us up on Twitter. Reach out to the Facebook group. Like, just let us know that you're digging the show, digging what we're doing, and tell your friends. You know, that's all we ask at this point. We'll get to sending Vic high-priced alcohol a little bit down the road. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> that's it. St. Bernardus, if you're listening, <laughs> for sponsorship, and uh, we, we will take payment in, in just free beer. Certainly, certainly, always. Uh, well, we are a beer and, generally speaking, alcohol-fueled podcast. And, uh, yeah, let's go chase the, the dragon, gentlemen. And I will say really quickly that, yeah, I've been thinking lately a lot about uh, escapism and, and about the kind of art that comes out of the most challenging times in, in human history. And one thing I will say is that the, the, the fiction and movies and other art forms that will come out of 2020 are going to be fucking awesome. I'll tell you that because we're going to plumb the reaches of our souls and get, uh, it's going to inspire a lot. And some of it will definitely be horror and some of it will be, 
uplifting and hopefully will help us inspire each other to do what we need to do to dig ourselves out of this hole and build a better tomorrow for our families. So that's, sorry to get all lofty with the rhetoric, but we're at another dip as we record this. Another dip in terms of both our our own lives and what's going on in the country and the world and as it pertains to COVID and everything else. So uh, this, this might be an interesting show, folks. There's a lot going under the surface here, undercurrents, shall we say. But uh, we do have business at hand, and we should probably get to it. And, of course, that is a pairing of two Haunted House movies. Two movies enter, one movie leaves. Uh, let's find out whether it's going to be The Devil's Backbone or Paranormal Activity 3. They are in the squared circle. Let's kick it off with a little bit of analysis of The Devil's Backbone. Of course, we've talked about it before uh, a couple of times. So at this phase of the process, we're just going to touch on highlight sequences, low light sequences, and endings. And of course, if the conversation goes deeper, spins off into weird tangents, that's totally fine too. But uh, Vic, would you like to to begin our analysis of uh, Devil's Backbone with a highlight sequence? I will. And I think... I I took a lot of notes on this one, and I have a lot of thoughts about it, which I think is really good the way that we're doing this because it does force you to to really focus down, really drill down on something that that jumps out at you. For me, it's it's the bomb. It opens – I mean the movie very nearly opens with the bomb, this bomb being dropped out of a plane and just as a a visual metaphor for everything that's that's going on – and even as something that, that drives the story to a certain degree, that is not just a metaphor, it's, it's actually a, serves a function in the plot. Everything that revolves around this enormous bomb stuck in the middle of this orphanage, the, the juxtaposition of this terrible destructive device surrounded by school children. And there's a moment when Carlos uh, asks the bomb – where Santi is and there are these ribbons tied to it up there and a red one blows off and blows in the direction of the the kitchen and ultimately to the Santi sort of resting place. I just think every bit of that is brilliant and lyrical and, and really highlights some of the strengths of this movie. Yeah. I think this is a wonderful movie and, and that is definitely a good thing to, to touch on. I, I, I think I used, I invoked bomb foo for my, <laughs> my special category in our scorecard round. Uh, because yeah, it definitely makes a, uh, sorry for the pun. It makes an impact, but, uh, yeah, my, my highlight sequence, <laughs> my highlight sequence is the scene where Jacinto stabs his fiance on the road. Their relationship was my favorite thing to track in watching this movie for the podcast a second time. Someone says that Jacinto is incapable of love. I think it's the older woman that he's sleeping with, uh, Carmen. And I can say I never saw love in his eyes, even when he was being quote-unquote tender with his fiance early in the movie. This guy doesn't even have one moment of true gentleness in the entire film. Shit, I'm going to do another pun here, but this scene kind of guts me. It really does. I mean, there's just something impossibly cruel about going from planning to get married 
and live on a farm together one day to getting a knife in your belly the next. And it does kind of make sense how we get there, as when Jacinto gets the boot, he, he looks back to see if Conchita is coming with him. She looks down in shame, more ashamed of him than anything. And then when he confronts her on the road later, he's more worried about how he looks to the other guys than his relationship with her, because he can't come off as weak to them. But all he really asks her to do is apologize and get in the truck, and Conchita chooses death. She doesn't seem surprised that he kills her. You could argue that she maybe should have lived to fight another day, but no, she's heartbroken and defiant. It's a very dangerous combination. So this scene really sticks with me. I, I think that's the scene that I'm... I was most intrigued and moved by the second time versus uh, the last time we saw this movie. So, uh, Rich, any thoughts on Vic and Vic's scene or my scene or both? And then maybe uh, take it away with yours. Yeah, well, I'm going to chime in and maybe break format here a little bit. Sure. Um, I chose that scene as my low light. Wow! Oh. Not because... Not because it's a it is a a bad scene per se. I think that taken on its own, it is an effectively cold and unsettling murder scene. It's beautifully shot. It reminds me a little bit of a No Country for Old Men. It has like a a cold, like expansive Western horizon. Yeah, yeah. It's shot in a lot of like large like profiles. It's it's beautiful and like the performances are very good. I just don't I don't see the the arc that you're talking about didn't come across to me. And in fact, it, it highlighted what, you know, I feel like Jacinto's story is still one of the, the weakest parts of this, this film. And, and just to kind of like break down where I'm coming from there is that, you know, this is someone who yeah, I agree that people have said like he's incapable of love, but this is the only time that he seems to kill for, I guess, revenge. There's almost a part of it that seems like he's killing for pleasure here, but up until this point, you've seen this character who's admittedly troubled, but he murdered Santi by accident. And actually the way that he reacts to that murder, even though he covers it up, is to – he seems troubled by it and bothered. He's not do, he's not thrilled about the fact that, that he is has, he's spilled blood. You know, Later, there's the explosion of the school, which also kills people, but that wasn't even the intent of it. It wasn't meant to hurt anyone, and it was arguably about money. I mean, to me, like this indicates like one of the bigger flaws in the film, that it's a horror movie that's essentially about a friendly ghost. And so he becomes this forced piece of narrative because the movie requires conflict. And, you know, sometimes it works to great effect. I mean, like I said, the scene isn't a, isn't a bad scene. It just loses some of my confidence, I guess. You know, maybe Jacinto could have been haunted more by his upbringing in a different way or have shown signs of regret after killing her. But... In the moment that he kills her, he kind of becomes two-dimensional. He just becomes the bad guy that they have to fight at the end. It reminds me a little bit of the husband in Pan's Labyrinth, who I also felt, and I actually wrote this down in my notes about Jacinto, he's almost comically bad. And that was how I felt about that guy. Jacinto has a little more backstory than I kind of remembered uh, from the last time that I watched it. So I feel like they they understand that that's something that's a line that they're skirting. And I feel like with the script, they try to throw 
a little bit in that direction to kind of maybe make him sympathetic. And I think the scene where he kills Santi is a good example of that, of sort of trying to demonstrate some humanity from him. But it doesn't, I agree, it doesn't do much. But I would point out, I mean, not only did he did he blow up the school sort of in, in pursuit of money, he talked about wanting to demolish that place, that he wanted to burn it down. And what part of what uh, she tells him when she's trying to stop him is, the kids are in there. There are people in there. Don't do this. So I, he he may not have set out to kill them, but he knew he was going to, and he did it anyway. So I'm not. I'm actually it, his his killing Conchita doesn't seem that out of character for him with me. No, it doesn't. I mean, I, I think he's consumed with rage, and it, it all kind of comes down to having been an, an abandoned child, an orphan himself. And all the shame that he felt growing up, I mean, both by not being wanted and by the status that was conferred upon these kids. And he he's he doesn't want anyone to know that he was one of them. And I think that he's sort of the dark, perverse possibility that the the other kid, the the bully who turns into a much more sympathetic character who befriends, uh, who Carlos ultimately befriends after tremendous effort. I think um, Jacinto is kind of the, one of the, the avenues that that kid might end up traveling in his own life uh, with all the, the bitterness and the, um, the, the, the trauma, really, of, of growing up that way. I, I, have, I have compassion for him from that perspective. I mean, I'm not going to say he's a particularly deep and rich and multi-layered antagonist. I definitely can't disagree with anything, you know, Rich said there, but I think that there is a difference like between this, this kill and what happens elsewhere in the film. I think we all agree on that, but I think that the, the thing that works for me here is that he did have an idea, a, a, I don't know if it's a fantasy, but at least a plan that he and Conchita would be together. But by turning her back on him and essentially shaming him, that's something that he cannot, he cannot abide. And I, I understand that. And while he's not, you know, he's not crying in the scene or something when he stabs her, um, which I think would certainly humanize him. And this is not really a character other than, again, that fleeting moment with with Santi where he, he obviously he didn't expect this or intend for this to happen, for Santi to die. I almost find it more disturbing that 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 he's, he's as cold as he is. Like, I, I think there's something, again, I called it impossibly cruel before, but it's also just sad that, that this is how this girl dies on this road and it almost means nothing. It's not even, you know, there's nothing overly dramatic about it is what I'm saying. I mean, I, I, you're right, but that's what I'm saying. Like it's a, it is an, it is an effective scene and it's tragic and it's, and it's sad. I just don't know that for the, for the, for the character who's essentially driving all the conflict in the story that it necessarily makes that much sense. My impression on the road was almost that, it's it is alarmingly premeditated. You know, he certainly looks at her and considers it and does it and does it somewhat slowly. I even got the feeling watching it the second time that the plan that he was planning to stab her regardless of whether she apologized or not. Like that was his intent as soon as he saw her on the road. 
But I think that what happened with Santi, we keep talking about that, right? That was the one where we saw some regret. And I, I feel like that set him on this path. Like once that happened and then he covered it up, then that put him on this road to violence that he suddenly knew he was capable of and and was was willing to dole out and became increasingly that. willing to dole it out as the movie went on. I think a piece of his soul was lost in that in that moment, you know, because he's at least largely responsible for Santi's death and and killing this child. Yeah, it it definitely I agree Vic, it puts him around a bend. I think it's interesting. I mean, I think it's a credit to the movie that we can have these differing interpretations of what's going on with this guy. I mean, I, I think actually the fact that Rich has this different interpretation means that it's not, it's not overly obvious. And, and it's something that, you know, you, you have to kind of unpack and read in your own way and, and in the context of what has followed it and what follows it and what has preceded it. So I'm really shocked that you would highlight that as like, as, as a weak point of the film, Rich. I mean, that's why don't you, yeah, maybe just explain again why, you think that this scene takes the movie down in some way? Well, I think the scene is emblematic of the problems that I have with the film, especially the problem with the film's third act, that because you don't have a conflict, because the ghost is in fact friendly and trying to, to guide you towards a conclusion, it feels like you need this ultimate evil, especially because Del Toro has cooked up what I find to be a, a very satisfying and um, chilling final scene. And it feels like he has to build this character up who you will not feel bad for when he is killed in the most, you know, borderline torture porn suffering cold, sad, painful way. This feels like a, this scene feels like a piece of a rewrite to me. It feels like they were missing a, a component that would justify the, the end. And so they had to make this leap without properly laying the groundwork earlier in the, in the film. And it feels a little disingenuous to me. And again, I'm, I'm not even saying it's a, I'm not saying it's a bad scene. That's not why it's my low light. I actually, like I said, I think it's a great scene. I just think that the role that it plays within the larger story is flawed and it sets into motion a weaker element of storytelling that comes to play in the half hour that follows it. I actually think that this highlights something that, that Del Toro is kind of weak with generally as a storyteller because I, I mentioned Pan's Labyrinth, and just as we've been talking, you know who else it reminds me of is Michael Shannon in The Shape of Water, which are yeah. the, those are both characters that I feel like they they know that they're made they, their goal is to make someone so awful that when they meet some horrific end that you don't feel bad about it or maybe even feel good about it. They also know he also knows. I keep saying they. He also knows that he has to – he doesn't want to give you just a, a cardboard cutout. He doesn't want it to be just a bad guy for the sake of being a bad guy. But he never seems to fill it in enough to make them actually sympathetic. And it's 
I don't know. It, it, now I'm looking at that as a theme throughout his work. I'll be curious to revisit some of his other films and see if I can spot anything like that. Especially these are all originals. I bet you would have a harder time finding this in Hellboy or Blade Two. And and honestly, like it wouldn't be that weakness. I don't think would be a, as stark in another filmmaker's movie because I think that actually by most horror movie standards, he actually has a decent amount of character development. Um, but in a film that really like, especially this movie that really thrives on its sense of humanity, on its sense of relationships and very real feeling characters with real emotions and backstories, he is the weak link to me. Well, Rich, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious to hear then what your highlight scene is. Look at Vic playing host. Well done. Well done. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a genuine sentiment. Now that we've, now that we've delved this far into our, into our, into uh, the, this, this particular scene, um, I'm curious what stands out to you as being positive in the film. Well, no, I don't know how this compares or contrasts. I would say, so going into, so circling back to my, my highlight scene, this was a tough one because there's a lot to really like in this movie. And actually a lot of the scenes that I gravitate towards weren't even horror moments. My first pick was the scene where they wake up Carlos and they want to trade for his comics. And they're sharing the, you know, the, uh, the one kid is like sharing his drawing of a, of a naked woman. It, like that stuff felt very real to me, but there was nothing horrific about it. And I felt like in a horror movie, we kind of need to find those defining moments. The highlight that I ended up on is the scene where the kids get locked up in the storage room just prior to the climax of the film. And it's a very horrific element that, that drew me to it. It has a nice Lord of the Flies action movie sort of build up where the, the kids are acknowledging that they need to fight back at Jacinto and, and they're concerned that they're bigger and stronger than us, you know, but there are more of the of the kids. And so they resolve themselves to to take beans into their own hand. They try to sneak out of the room. A kid breaks his ankle. And you get this really wonderful horror beat where the kid that escaped out the window is approached by just the – you only see the torso. But it's the, the body of Dr. Cesaras who died in the previous scene. And – He's preceded by a cloud of flies. John, I think you mentioned this when we were talking about it the first time yep. um, as, a, as a highlight. He approaches with a cloud of flies before him. And this is something that really felt very singular. It felt like a very Clive Barker sort of detail. That This is not just a movie about ghosts or just a movie about zombies. It really is a movie that is about what does it mean to be a ghost how does it feel? What does it sound like? What does it smell like? There's something very visceral about the, the flies, and it's a, it's a beat that comes up again elsewhere. But it was just a tiny detail that brought to life an entire world of the living dead, yeah. which is something that this movie does really well. Absolutely. I'm really glad that you brought that up. I think that <laughs> we're jumping all over here. But I tied it into the ending because it is so close to the – I would even call that taking place within Act 3. You know, that's kind of what kicks off Act 3. So I was going to talk about it then and maybe I still will. But but the what you're touching on, like the idea of 
the phantasma and the, the sort of tragic wisdom that comes from living your life and dying and having some perspective on, on it all is, is definitely one of my favorite things about the movie. Vic, do you have any thoughts on that without hopefully like skipping low light sequence entirely and getting into ending? <laughs> Actually, what I really want to talk about is paranormal activity. I'm oh God. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. What I would say, what that, what that makes me think of, one of the thoughts that I had in this, and I think I brought this up in the initial discussion of it, but it really jumped out at me this time, is the defining characteristic of Guillermo del Toro in his original films is he loves monsters. He wants them. He, he sympathizes with them. He empathizes with them. His monsters tend to be more fleshed out pardon the pun, than some of the human bad guys, which I think is what we're, is what we're talking about. And so that's rich. I feel like that's what you're sort of what you're driving at here is that he's really thinking about this film from the ghost perspective. I mean, that's what the opening and closing voiceover is about. And I think it, it undermines the films as, as horror films specifically, but it does make them really rich interesting films to watch. Yes, yes, yes. And yeah, those bookends are exactly what Rich was talking about and what I was talking about in the, yeah, just sort of putting into perspective the perspective of the ghost. And you don't really realize that's the perspective until you've watched the whole movie, but scary, maybe not artful. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, doubling back to low light sequence, I really, here's where I'm going to throw some cold water on the party I really kind kind of find the first half of this movie not that interesting at this point, having, you know, being intimately familiar with it now. Except, you know, there's a scene or two here and there that, that I really like, but I really find that the movie, for me, kicks into gear when Dr. Casares, for some reason, I want to call him Professor Achilles. I, I don't know where that comes from, but... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, he, he sees his friend getting executed uh, in this alley against a wall. And from that point on, it's riveting. But up until then, I get a little bored with all of the stuff with the one who whispers, Santi, just kind of making his presence known, reaching out to Carlos, Carlos walking around dark corridors and so on. As a larger point about movies, I think that stuff like that really only works in subsequent viewings. Again, when you're watching a movie multiple times, if the movie retains its mysteries, if it doesn't reveal things at the end, because if you're always searching for clues, if you're always unsure, no matter how many times you watch the movie, what's going on, but you're fascinated with the theories and the interpretations and the ambiguities, then abstract things retain their interest. But once we sort of know almost everything about Santi, who he was, what happened to him, what he wants, what's left, really, you know, after, after you watch all this buildup again. I think the ghost effect is good. Rich talked about this, you know, a few shows ago, the sort of the fact that the ghost is submerged underwater. And so you have this sort of swirling miasma around him of his own blood bubbling up to the surface. All that's really cool. But everything in this movie, to an extent, seems geared to the first watch. 
And I think that that whole extended sequence that ends with Carlos in the closet and Santi outside, uh, knowing what I know about Santi and Carlos, like it's supposed to be scary, but it's not at this point. Cause I know, I know that there's no threat. So that does almost nothing for me now. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's get to the good stuff. So that's, that's my long winded answer for, for low light sequence. Uh, Vic, why don't you comment on that and roll into yours? I agree with, with your, your point for the most part. I like the interactions between the boys. I feel like that all feels really genuine. Mm -hmm. And so there's some performances and some character stuff that, that draws me into that first half of it. But I agree that scene. The other thing that he does really well is layer in the, the political stuff, the stuff that's going on in the war. There's all kinds of stuff happening outside of the place. It feels like a much bigger movie than it actually is. Uh, and, and I think that the fact that the pivotal scene is, you know, a, a dissident being executed in one of the two trips outside of the, the orphanage really highlights how much they're able to, to paint the world that's going on around this. So I, yeah, I, I agree with that. My low light is the scene when Jaime finally reveals what happened to Santi and the, the mystery that has supposedly been driving the film is revealed because it's really not much of a mystery. The bad guy did it. And for pretty much the reasons that you assumed he did. Like it's, there's, there's not much information that's given there. It's not like, Oh my God, it was Carmen. You know, it's like, Nope, Mm -hmm. it was the, it was the asshole who, who, who cut the kid's face 45 minutes ago. He also killed Santi. What a shocker. Yeah. And he did it because he's been trying to steal the money and Santi caught him. But like, we all knew he was trying to steal the money. So the gold. So, yeah, it's that feels like a letdown to me with with all the other things that are so good around it. This, but really, it's this central mystery of what happened to Santi is supposed to be the the driving force of this narrative, and it really ends uh, just to keep the puns rolling with a bit of a sigh. <laughs> That's good. That's a better pun. Thank you. Oh, so Vic gets the pun of the night. I've got better puns than you. Vic, that actually makes me think back to, you know, another thing that that really bumps me about this film every time I see it is the opening sequence, which is basically just a a deliberately vague montage of of what happened. I don't know what it is about movies, especially movies made around this time period, uh, with Spanish directors involved, that they feel they need to have this deep tease that, that that's supposed to draw you in, that is ultimately like completely ineffective. Like I, I, I found the cold open of this thing pretty useless and wasn't really able to make heads or tails of it. But I'm with you. You're right. They, they've explained every element of the mystery, so it's not like the film does not function as a mystery or a whodunit. Yeah, it fails on that level. I mean, to be fair, it's not really trying to do that, really. It's not, but as, as Vic points out, like, why make a big to-do of the reveal then? Like, why not just let it happen organically and understand that the audience knows that that's what happened? Yeah, fair enough. So what's your uh, low-light sequence? 
Well, wait, you already gave us your low light sequence. Yes. So why don't you, uh, why don't you drive us right into the ending there, Rich? The ending of this movie is, is essentially put into motion the moment where the kids decide that they're going to fight back. Yes, it does. They're, (laughs) they are, they are let out of the, the room as I described by Dr. Achilles. (laughs) Professor Achilles. Um, I also wanted to point out before we move on from this scene that, that I also, I was like, Oh, this scene is like the, the escape from the shining, uh, from the freezer, but it actually works. Um, so they actually get out of the room. They're released by the ghost and we find Jacinto. He's left high and dry by his bros who, uh, who, who ride out out of town with the only remaining truck, but there's (laughs) still gold. And so Jacinto ties the remaining gold to his waist before falling victim to a pretty obvious trap led by the boys where they just like pop into the room and are like, Hey, and then run away. And he chases them, but he just really has it out for everyone at this point. So he falls for it, but that's barely beside the point. They get down to the basement level where the well or whatever you want to call that body of water is. And the kids proceed to stab him to death in a very Lord of the flies kind of way with these spears before they send him into a well where the gold that he had tied to his belt drags him down to the bottom. There he meets the, uh, the, the spirit of Santi and ultimately meets his fate. Have I left anything out? Oh, it's pretty good. Santi is the, the whitest possible pronunciation of the boy's name. <laughs> <laughs> Jacinto and Santi. I'm guilty. I'm guilty of Jacinto. We live near the San Jacinto Mountains, so uh, that, that sort of Professor Aquilas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> um, I like the. Here's the thing. I know that I'm interested to hear what Vic has to say because Vic has said before that he doesn't really care for the end of this movie. I don't know what's not to care for. Yeah. It, if you are, if you're willing to to accept the, the rest of the movie as is, which I really am, despite my grievances. Once he gets down here, this is a pretty good just desserts for a villain. It's very classical in a sense. The fact that he's ultimately drowned by the by the gold tied to his waist belt is a, a, a tiny bit obvious. But when he's tying the gold to his waist belt, that's not what you're thinking about. So yeah. it's a pretty nice plant for a man who's ultimately destroyed by by greed, among other things. I also like I you know I went through this when we went through the movie the first time. I love the scene with the the spears. I said that it borders on torture porn, which I don't really is not a genre or a style that I care for. But here they have at least gone through the emotions to earn this character's death and the vengeance that these kids wreak on him. And it is painful to watch. I wince every time I see this scene. I really feel like as a viewer, you have a sense of what it feels like to be stabbed by these spears. It's a combination of the sound, the angles, the fact that they go for his armpit. <laughs> it's just a very, again, it's a, it's a very human death. It's imperfect. It feels like they're driving down a boar, a wild animal that they have to put down for its own good. Is that a simile? Yeah, I think it's, I guess it's a simile. But yeah, that 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 has is that primal, clumsy, awkward, just uh, you know, 
somebody's going to live and somebody's going to die. It's not, nobody's practicing martial arts at a high level. That's a very good uh, descriptor there. Vic, what are your thoughts on the ending? And uh, Rich's quite compelling statement, I would have to say. Are you, are you coming around? Do you like the ending a little bit more now? The thing that bothers me about the ending, aside from the lack of, of any real revelation, is that Santi doesn't really do anything. Like the whole point is like, bring, you know, he, I think he says to Carlos, bring him. bring him to me, you know? And so that then, so then the boys come up with, as Rich pointed out, a, a rather lame trap to trick him down there. But I still sort of buy that. It's fine. I agree. Well, he's but, always underestimated them. He's always been in control of them. It's true. Yeah. And there is something sort of metaphorically effective about him with the gold tied to him, bringing him down. And so it's only, he's in the water and he's already, he's been stabbed like 50 times and he's being dragged underwater. Like, the, even if he manages to get the gold off of his belt, like it's not like he's going to survive. <laughs> so all Santi does is it really is just hasten his death instead of the, the boys getting to like poke him with the sticks a few more times until he drowns. <laughs> so it didn't, it didn't, it, even though it certainly felt like he got his comeuppance, I didn't get the sense that Santi took some great measure of revenge. But that's a big what, problem for you. I mean, it's a team effort. It's not a it's not a big problem, but it's, okay. it's just an issue. What I noticed this in in this viewing more than ever before, and I'm really curious to hear what you guys if you guys notice this, if you care, if it means anything. One of the closing images is as as they're doing the voiceover is of Santi standing atop that water. And I had noticed before that uh, there is a scene where after Carlos and Jaime have been caught out of the uh, out of the the room and the other kids too, and so they have to help put the Christ on the cross up in the in the yard. And as they were putting it up, you see the the crown of thorns and the blood running down Christ's head. And it immediately connected visually to me with the the wound in Santi's head and the blood that's not flowing down but floating up. And so I was really on the lookout for sort of Christ imagery surrounding him. And so I thought that was an interesting just visual connection to make. And I know Del, Del Toro was raised in a very religious household. And then to close the film – with this image of Santi literally walking on water, uh, I thought was just a, you know, an interesting parallel. There's something he's trying to say about the innocence of childhood and, and, and how that connects to being sort of Christ-like. But the other thing, because I was just looking out for this, I also then noticed that the first thing that happens when uh, Yacinto is, is being attacked by the children is he's struck in the side by a spear which is what happens to Jesus when he's on the cross. So I don't know if I'm, if I'm breathing too much into this, but this added another layer to me to a lot of what was happening in those, in those closing scenes that it, it, it works. It's a, again, it's a, it's a good, it's a, I want to say a storybook ending. Like it feels like a fairy tale. It feels like, you know, the, the, 
the wolf getting ripped up by the by the man the the woodcutter or whatever um i don't know it, it, and that's that's sort of the the tone that i feel like he's gone with with this is it, it does feel very much like a fairy tale i'll tell you what this is not commentary but i did as i was reading into like the the trivia of the film today uh one of the things that came up was that so Guillermo de Toro apparently wrote this when he was in college. It was like one of those early passion projects. And the original version of it was set during the Mexican Revolution. And it didn't focus on the ghost of a child, but rather a, a Christ with three arms that was haunting the orphans. Whoa. That's a nugget. How about that little piece of trivia? Huh. Three-armed Jesus. Did he just have a... Did he just have a large penis? <laughs> he was a tripod. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Jesus. <laughs> you know, for the record, I generally hate Christ imagery in movies where, like, what is the point of saying this or that character is Christ-like? I think it's a very cheap and facile sleight of hand like to say oh I want you to think of this character as Christ-like which what does that even mean you know oh well so they're self-sacrificing and they're trying to help elevate humanity but they are doomed to be struck down in some way and Especially Vic, if if you if you invoke that with the spear and Jacinto, I'm just rolling my fucking eyes. I mean, it just does not. That does not add anything for me. If 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 God forbid that was intentional, I I like the movie less. So <laughs> I don't know. If Vic's interpretation is accurate, and who know who knows what else could be nested in the film if it is. I mean, I'm never beyond the idea of having some literary like symbolism and like and echoes throughout. I don't know exactly what the commentary is. I wasn't raised in a particularly religious household, nor have I studied it, so I can't really say what it exactly it could potentially mean. But for a film that is as interested in being lyrical and and sort of novelistic as this film is, like like why not? Why not broaden the scope to larger characters and themes? You, you guys were saying there's a, there tends to be sort of a lack of ambiguity on the surface of this. That once the mystery is revealed, John, what you were saying about being bored in the first act because you kind of know where everything's going and the mysteries are all there. I, on this viewing, found some undercurrent that intrigued me and that I was I was paying more attention to scenes. I actually thought I haven't done it, but I actually had the idea of trying to count how many gold bars Jacinto gets out of Carmen's leg, which is just one of those sentences you never think you're going to say. <laughs> wow, uh, they really went deep down the devil's backbone rabbit hole. Yeah. So, I did, again, I didn't. I didn't go that deep, but I thought about it, which is really a metaphor for my entire professional career. And we haven't even talked about the devil's backbone itself and what that metaphor is as it relates to, you know, a little little child in a jar. And, I mean, I think oh, that, that 
I actually really wanted to spend some time trying mm-hmm. to unpack that because I have very mixed feelings about that scene, but I don't feel like now's the time or place. I almost feel like this is, you know, we have our quibbles, but this is absolutely the kind of movie that could uh, bear fruit if you were to give it a lot of scrutiny and have an in-depth conversation about it. So that is definitely working in its favor, in my opinion. We like movies that bear fruit here on the March Mad Men podcast. We, we like fecund films. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's unfortunate, it's unfortunate that Paranormal Activity is just uh, – Paranormal Activity 3 is just a runaway train that is just destroying the competition. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't get me started, Rich. Don't get me started. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. All right, but uh, here are my comments on the ending of this movie. And as I think I said earlier, I like to include all of Act 3 in my analysis of, of an ending, if it's warranted. From the second uh, half of Act 2 on, which is probably where Jacinto is evicted, I think this movie is in high gear the rest of the way. I thought Carmen's death scene was very poignant. I love this stuff with Dr. Casares slash Professor Achilles on sentry duty at this open window, dying with his shotgun, this really striking, expansive view of the property and the road. I love that shit, man. I don't think I've ever seen a ghost manifest while the person's corpse is barely cold in the next room, which happens in this movie. I like the way the old man comes back to help the kids get out of that locked room. And yeah, being speared in the armpit is pretty rough as Jacinto gets his just desserts. I think that that works. And I like that. I like that. It's the weight of the gold bars that might be Jacinto's final undoing. At least the movie wants us to believe that, even though as Vic pointed out, he's probably fucked regardless. Even the final lines that the phantasma speaks are affecting as is the idea that his vow to remain there will be kept. Overall, I think it's a very strong ending and it elevates the movie. I always want an ending to elevate the movie. And I think that that is absolutely in effect here. Even if I think the kids dealing with Jacinto goes about as smoothly as possible for the, for the kids, meaning that the act three scenario does not have a classical conclusion of, they could fail. It looks like they will. It's very touch and go. And somehow they triumph and, or they lose like, no, they just, they kill Jacinto, but I'm okay with it because the rest of act three is so intense. So again, compared to the orphanage, which I ranted about very passionately and it's ending, I leave this movie satisfied. So that those are my thoughts on the ending. Everybody should leave uh, the ending satisfied. You know what yeah. I mean? The happy ending. I reached yeah. every full satisfaction at the end of this film. Everybody, everybody should get a fortune cookie at the end of the meal. And a bomb in your backyard. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get into Paranormal Activity 3, I want to say that I just opened up a – I love the Hawaiian beers, guys. I don't know. Maybe it reminds me of my honeymoon. I've just – I've developed a, um, a fondness for – Kua Bay India Pale Ale and other Kona Brewing Company 
beers. I got like 12 of them and uh, the, the whole sampler and it, it, it's definitely something I enjoy. So Vic, what are you, what are you drinking at this point in the evening? I've moved on to a, just a new Belgium triple, which is not, not that fancy. I started off with the bourbon barrel quad, which I highly recommend, but I, I unfortunately I opened that before we started the podcast. So that's my, my ringing recommendation. However, just for a regular, a regular six pack at the store, the triple's not bad. It's nothing shake stick at. Vic, you need to time the opening of your beverages when you're on mic. Come on, man. I mean, how yeah. long have we been doing this? Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. I let everybody down. You let yourself down, Vic. You let the American people down, Vic. <laughs> Jesus, Dad, just let me do my thing. God. <laughs> We're working out some personal issues on the podcast this week. <laughs> yes, yes. This is therapy for us. Paranormal Activity 3 is oh. definitely not a subject that w- is going to take us deep into our souls, I don't think. But let's talk about it anyway. Somehow this movie has made it really far into our tournament to the point that I feel like if I have to watch Paranormal Activity 3 one more time, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but it might not be healthy. So I know. Uh, Vic, let's make this happen. Yeah, we're voting for Paranormal Activity 3. I, I, we're going to live stream John oh watching God. it the third time. I'm distinctly aware of the fact that this movie might not even be in the tournament if I hadn't like breezily nominated it. Rich will argue with this, but I'm pretty sure I... I'm the reason this movie is is here, and I'm regretting it more and more every round. <laughs> I will say this. It is a stronger film than Paranormal Activity, and that is why it is advanced further than Paranormal Activity. Did. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. I'm not going to argue with that at all. But one of my big, I, I think, the one selling point when I had only seen this movie once and, and we're doing our nomination show, I, I believe I said... And, you know, there's a lot less dead time in this movie. You know, this is a movie that was more consistently interesting and scary. Well, no, not when you watch it like four times. When you watch it four times, it becomes, oh, dear God, are we to act three yet? I mean, at least that's how I feel. I'm sorry, guys. Yeah, I, I'd kind of I'd kind of second that. I, I'll say that my, my rewatching this time was not as much fun as my watching last time. It's just fucking cotton candy. There's nothing there. Exactly. There's no there's no subtext. There's nothing else going on. But just from sort of a formalist perspective, like how it's put together, how it's shot, a lot of what interests me in horror films in general, and I think I talked about this when we did initially, so I'll keep this brief, but is what are the what are the things you can use, what are the tools at your disposal to really make a horror film seem real? What, what really makes a horror film scary to me, which is not the only category, the only category in determining what's going to advance in, in our tournament here, but certainly one of the biggest, if you're trying to identify the biggest horror, the greatest horror film, what makes it scary? And that is how do you tear down the fourth wall, make a movie that, that follows people home? And that's one of the things that Paranormal Activity did quite brilliantly, as we talked about. And this movie just takes, the lessons of that movie and mostly improves upon them. Yeah, that's fair, Vic. That's very fair. So, uh, Rich, what's your uh, highlight sequence for Paranormal Activity 3? 
My highlight is both a highlight and, in a sense, underlines the flaws of this film. There are lots of good scenes. There's a couple that I could have picked that are also really excellent horror scenes. I'm hoping that maybe you guys pick them instead. I tried to go a little more offbeat here. It's when Lisa the Babysitter shows up. Part of this is because I love Lisa the Babysitter, and she is (laughs) probably the most likable character in the entire film, largely because she doesn't get to speak a whole lot. She just gets to run through the the motions of this found footage film. I love the whole sequence that where Lisa is watching the kids and has her own encounter because it is basically a short film that is this, this series. It's really a, like a standalone scare and it captures, you know, people talk about movies, or at least we do in our house, where we say, oh, well, that film felt like it was a short story that someone tried to blow up into a novel. And that is where yeah, I think you run into some of the shortcomings of this film and, and this kind of film in general. But here you have this little bit where Lisa the babysitter shows up. She's watching the Katie and Christy the two little girls who have this imaginary friend who's also a, you know, a demon. And it's just, it has everything that this movie does well from the effective use of the oscillating fan to reveal the, the ghost that is, that is behind Lisa. It also has this nice little built in story where the Lisa is telling the girls a ghost story and she puts the sheet over her head and pretends to be a ghost. So in the next scene, she's being pursued unbeknownst to her by the ghost hiding underneath the sheet who then disappears. And, you know, she comes up, she, she actually like fucks with the camera a little bit in a way that almost mocks the cat scares that have plagued the film earlier on. And her personality reads well in a short period. It's not a sequence with a lot of big scares, but it does show all the movie's strengths with pacing and with tension and clever gags, which is really where this movie shines. Yeah, it's all about the gags. My thought watching that sequence again, even though I I do agree it's one of my favorites, I don't know what to make of the fact that the figure under the sheet is child-sized, meaning it would be Christy or Katie, but it's not because, you know, the sheet just drops to the floor and there's nobody underneath it, so that means it's Toby or whatever. It's a supernatural thing. But we've established that Toby is quite tall, both, you know, as, as described by the kids and in the earthquake sequence at the beginning of the movie. So why does the ghost take the height of a, of a child? This is like something, if, if we somehow got to the point where we were going to pick this movie apart in great detail, I have so many logical and just plot holy things, complaints about the movie, having watched it this many times. And this is definitely one of them. Like, there's no logical reason why it looks like it's one of the little girls under the sheet. It's just, it does not work for me. I know that's like a very minor quibble. It's an effective scene. I like it. And I definitely like the babysitter. (laughs) But... Also, though, I will say, like, when she gets the wind blown on her or whatever as the sort of capper of this, that was effective in Ghostbusters with with the librarian at the at the beginning. But 
it's it's still pretty weak sauce at this point, I think, and and that terrifies her, and she's like, you know, she checks out at that point, um, which I think is cool that she's like very cold to the the parents when they get home because she's so terrified. I think that works. I just wish it was a bigger scare. The breath on the face or whatever is is not the best payoff uh, in the in the franchise. But it is still pretty effective. I really like the visual of the of the sheet. I agree, John. I can totally tell that, like the the fact of it being sort of child sized, is totally a discussion where a bunch of people were like, "Man, kids are creepy. Let's make it look like a kid." And that's literally all the thought that went into it. And and I actually think it might have been creepier if it had been tall. And how creepy would it have been if it had been really tall? If it had yes. been, you know, the fucking the super tall guy and it follows tall. Yes, like, yes. I mean, know. like a consistent mythology where you're like, we only grasp elements of this, but we believe that there's something consistent and, and tangible and logical that underpins this haunting. It's really scary. This movie is lacking that. It's just a grab bag of random scares. Well, and it's also again, it's it's a great that that one in particular is the easy scare. It's one of the things when I'm when I'm writing, I always sort of try to okay, the the first thing that pops into my head, okay, I take that, I put that in a basket somewhere in case I need to come back to it. But what's the thing I can do that's not the first thing you think of? What's the you know? And I think that kids are scary is just the knee jerk reaction for horror film writers and and. It feels a little lazy, I guess. I, I not only guess, I know. <laughs> but I don't want to take anything away from this. It's a scary scene. The things, the things that do work, you have. That's one of the scenes where you have the the camera on the fan, so it's oscillating, which which they use to great effect. Even the base of there's a there's a lot of silence and there's a lot of slow buildup. That that makes those scenes even the again the breath in the face is not the most satisfying payoff, but it's a it's a hell of a buildup, and that scare still works. It still gets a jump out of you because of the patience that's required by the the format. All right, well, uh, Vic, what's your highlight sequence? My highlight sequence is the Bloody Mary scene. I actually think this is, watching it again, I thought this was a really exceptional scene. I really like the performance. I thought that that, uh, Dustin Ingram, who plays Randy, is, I think he's actually really good and really convincing in this. I like the idea of a guy who's not comfortable with kids being thrust into this situation where it's like, hey, can you just watch this kid for two hours while we go to the doctor? And it's like, sure, okay. You know, she's she's older. It's, you know, it's we're gonna we're gonna it's gonna be fine. And all of a sudden, shit hits the fan, and you are called upon to actually be the protector and make these really important decisions about what are we gonna do, how are we gonna get out of this. And I felt in his in his performance, which is totally audio, right? Because he's holding the camera, so you don't really. It's not like he's he's in front of the camera doing anything. I really felt his like, oh shit, oh shit. Okay, no, it's fine. Everything's fine. It's okay. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> like that juxtaposition of if I was alone in this room, I would be losing my shit. But there's this little girl here, and so I have to pretend to be calm and in control and like I know what's going on 
and just combined with number one, he gets bitten by something, and it's one of the only real physical effects. It's one of the only attacks in the film. I think it's a scratch, not a bite. I think it is a bite as well. But it's a long red mark on his stomach, isn't it? Like one one long mark. That's what I saw. I feel like, I feel like he used the word. I feel like he used the word bite, but it's not. That's not particularly relevant. It's just that it's it's a physical. It's a real like this thing will actually hurt you, which is not something we've really seen up to this point. Right. And then the moment when he opens the door and you see the furniture flying around. That's it cool. It reminded me of the pact in what I, which I talked about in my highlight in that film where she's being thrown around. There's a, there's a, a practicality to it. If a force was just throwing furniture around, this really felt like what it would look like. And it really tapped into the realism that makes these films work. It's not the character development. It's not the thematic development. It's not the directing or the, you know, the terrific screenwriting. It's that there's something really profoundly realistic about the way that it plays out. And that scene and those scares really, it's, it, it, it really got under my skin. I thought a lot about this scene, Vic, and I love the way that it's executed. I agree with all the points that, that you're making on it. I also just really enjoy the fact that we have a scene that is based on the Bloody Mary legend and the idea of that taking on a, a life of its own, a life out of control, which is funny because when you're a kid and you're playing something like that, this is sort of the scenario that you wish for, but you also hope never happens. And it's playing into a very suburban kind of myth, something that everyone can relate to. Here's the thing that threw me off about it, and maybe you guys can 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 find a way around this, is that... These movies, these found footage films, and in particular this one, where you have someone who set up cameras all over the place, rely on a sort of contract with the viewer that you get to see everything, that this is a documentary, and that you're just being presented the footage to judge the terror on its own merits. And if that's the case, I believe this scene cheats. It breaks the contract. It presents you with only the footage of the people in the bathroom and shows you a figure moving just outside the door, even though they make it clear both before and after the haunting that there is a camera that is still running tape in the playroom. No, no, no. There's just a tripod out there. You see the, you see the tripod when he opens the door, he took the camera off the tripod. When they leave at the end of the scene, you see them from another camera in the corner of the room. Uh, yeah, that, that definitely escaped me because the camera that is usually in the playroom, which is right in front of the little door with the secret room that Toby lives in, it's an empty tripod when he opens the door from the bathroom. So I don't know where this other camera is because all of the shots of the, the bed, the two kids in the bed and the stairs, it's all from that tripod. And, and you never see the closet or the little room because... Uh, in all of those shots, I mean, you see it in other situations, but because the camera is in front of that, I don't know. This did not. This did not strike me. I am. I'm gonna. I'm gonna pull it up now as we talk, just so, just so I can double check. I'm almost positive though. Like I watched it twice 
trying to piece it together. I'm definitely not saying that you're wrong. I'm just saying that that did not uh, jump out at me. But while you're looking for it, I will have a couple of comments about the sequence. This is going to be kind of curmudgeonly because I definitely agree it's a powerful scene. The thumping on the door and all of that is very visceral, very powerful. And I will say overall that the sound design in this movie, like at least 60%, and I think that's a conservative estimate, 60% of the impact of this movie is sound. Because they punch up, sweeten, whatever you want to call it. They make what's happening on camera, which might not be that much, they amplify it by a factor of 10 with these big spikes of somewhat unrealistic, often sound. And, but it has the jarring effect. It's very, uh, whether it's a jump scare 90% of the time or something else, like they definitely, the sound engineers earn their money on this movie and it's quite effective, but okay. My big problems with the bloody marriage sequence, one I'm done with saying somebody's name three fucking times or four times or five times or whatever the fuck it is in a mirror. I don't even know. I might not enjoy Candyman as much, honestly, at this point, because I am so done with that the Bloody Mary conceit or whatever. And it's also kind of funny that and this isn't necessarily a bad thing about this movie, but it's irrelevant to what's happening in this movie. Like, I don't think the movie even suggests that what they're doing, repeating that word, those two words, the ghost here, the demon does not care. Like they're, they're barking up the wrong tree, but I'm sort of over it as a conceit of, of ghost movies. So I'll say that. And yeah, that's curmudgeonly, but uh, you know, it is what it is. And the other thought is, um, and this is, again, yeah, I'm not dissing the sequence. I'm just noting that the guy turns very uh, religious in in his, uh, Randy, in what he's saying, like, oh, God, oh, dear Lord, oh, protect me, and stuff like that, which was just uh, interesting. He's not introduced as a character that you would expect that from, but the movie sort of defaults to, and I think this sort of plays into the audience, especially the Hispanic audience for a lot of horror films, uh, very uh, young Christian and or Catholic audiences in the movie just sort of instinctively goes to that, where personally I wouldn't have thought that that character would have, would have said that. So again, that's not a criticism. It's just, it was something that I, I noticed this time. I do think it's scary. I do think it's effective. I think it's funny and kind of weird that the kid is like all flipped out. Like what did the kid expect at this point? And that does sort of raise, this is a larger criticism. The kids vacillate wildly between being up for stuff and being like, okay with Toby to being terrified out of their wits. And there's no logic to it at all. You know, like it's almost like the kids are acting like, there's Toby who we're cool with, and then there's something else that we're not. But there's no there's no logic to that. We all the audience knows it's all Toby. So John, uh, yeah, John, you just sound like someone who hasn't spent a lot of time with kids. I <laughs> guess not. <laughs> there is no logic. Yeah. 
Hey, John, save it, save it for the lowlights, man, all right? This is the highlights section. <laughs> well, I, I will confess, I watched this movie an hour and a half ago, and I did not technically write up anything, so I'm just going to kind of throw out my, my thoughts as we go. But I do have a highlight sequence. Uh, you guys have both given yours. I will throw out that um, you've mentioned it before, but for me, it's the scene uh, also oscillating fan cam where at the, at the, towards the end, and I think this is clever on multiple levels. Once you've seen the movie, you know that the evil force and grandma wants to get the kids to, to her house and um, their mother, she definitely looks like a couple of more famous and successful actresses. Zoe Deschanel springs to mind. Don't you think kind of like an elf? I don't know. Like that was, I, I, don't, I don't really see it, but I, I am a fan of the mom the movie. Yeah, I know you are and I get it. But in any event, she's saying, no, they need normalcy. We need to keep, we need to stay here. And the house or the demon or whatever's like, well, okay, we can change that. They knock on the door. There's, there's nobody at the door. She goes to check the door, and there's no one there. And she comes back into the kitchen, and suddenly, like, they kind of made a big deal out of pointing that there's all kinds of shit on the counter and the kitchen table, and all of that is suddenly gone and out of frame. And she just looks at it, and she knows there's something wrong. It's like a bare table, a bare counter, and everything just drops from the ceiling. And yeah, I mean, this is sort of taking a page from Poltergeist and, and whatever, but I, I think it's just a really great cinematic sequence. So that's, that's my oh, choice. Yeah. I think they, I think they own that scare. Like that, that would be my, that is definitely the, the signature, like go to scare of this film. It's, I think it's very clever actually. And I think it's very well executed, honestly, Mm-hmm. Even more, even with repeated viewings, she walks back into the kitchen and and she stops. And I think that most audience members, myself included, have the experience of looking at the kitchen and understanding that something is not right, but not being able to put together what it is. Yeah, and that's a pretty great setup where you've been pri- like it's not a cat scare, which again is this movie's yep. biggest weakness. You are properly primed for this for the scare. It's just that the movie is or the ghost is just a tiny bit smarter than you. And that's that's effective uh, filmmaking, I think. Yep. I agree. Although from a from a narrative perspective, it did sort of bother me that her whole fucking family has been terrorized for the last hour. And, like, she has one supernatural experience. You know what I mean? People have been injured. Like, her kids are freaking out. Her daughter's talking to imaginary people. But, like, oh, the kitchen table is on the ceiling. That's it. We're out. Well, that raises another issue. Like, they have this bookend sequence that goes by so quickly you you forget it at the at the beginning. If you look at the overall mythology here, the idea is that these two little girls grow up and, and they do set this up that the cult or whatever have brainwashed them. So they have no memory of these experiences yet. It's all been committed to videotape. And when the mom dies, 
uh, Katie, who has yet to have the experience of uh, Paranormal One happen to her. I'm going to interrupt you because you're 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 treading onto my low light, and I don't know. If, uh, we can go ahead and we can go ahead and dive into that because I think we've all done our highlights. We have actually. Before, before so. the low light, I want to double back to my my comment on Vixine. Okay. I just want to interject here real quick before we move on to our low light sequences. I did go back and double check the film itself. I guess, John, you're right. And kudos to you for, for keen observation that the tripod is seen empty in, in the shot when he peeks out the door. The thing that is, was equally confusing to me is that there's a very strange edit that follows that scene where they come out of the door and I guess we're expected to understand that he has then taken the camera and placed it back on the tripod in order to film them walking down the stairs. <laughs> so make, make what you will of that and make what you will of the fact that the camera is, is active only moments later down in the garage. But uh, it seems that you are correct that the camera was removed from the tripod. So I, Take my comments back. I think there's still some filmmaking mysteries to be resolved, but uh, I was wrong. I think we're both right in a way. Yeah, that's a that's a better way to look at it. That's right. you're both right. But Vic is always wrong. Clearly, wow! You've been, you've been talking to my wife <laughs> and your boss Sorry. and everyone else in your life. <laughs> <laughs> All right, for my low light scene, I, I want to. I first just want to point very briefly to an honorable mention for the sex tape scene, which I just feel like is the the worst kind of looking at things from earlier movies and recreating them because you think that's what makes it successful. I think uh, poltergeist. <laughs> poltergeist. <laughs> Poltergeist. Sorry, no. no I was coughing, Vic. I no. I was uh, no. Sorry. I, the, <laughs> what I was actually what I was referring to was they did the same thing in the first Paranormal Activity, uh, where they they sort of turn off the camera and I, I think they intimate that they are, are having anal sex or something. Right. Um, right. Right. And it's but what it reminded me of was. The, we, when we were doing the Halloween movies and we kept talking about how they kept coming back to the closets, that somehow like they identified this is the thing that people wanted to see in this movie, and it's because it's not actually terribly sexy. Like it's not like it's no. something ter- really erotic, but it's it's you can feel the producers going. We need to have a sense that they're having sex off camera. Like, make that, you know, or something like that. Like, we, you know, we I need to... You. I enjoyed the sex scene. I also think that it is a perfectly logical conclusion that every husband who has decided to set up cameras that are going to run 24 hours a day in the entire house at some point is going to try to convince to have his wife to have sex on camera. That is just logical. I would feel offended if that scene wasn't in there. And I think this one... <laughs> is well done and better done than the, than the first paranormal activity, much like every other gag in the film. I'm, I'm with Rich. Wow, I was going to make an anal sex joke, but that doesn't seem appropriate. Fair oh, enough. Boy. Uh, uh, hey, Vic, <laughs> anal sex jokes are always appropriate on this podcast. <laughs> That's just my honorable mention. It just, it's, I, I've had enough experiences of, of producers being like, hey, 
we need some sex in here and and saying that's wholly inappropriate for this movie and they're like yeah but we need some sex in here and that's just what I sort of felt like about that scene okay so Vic, Vic wants less sex in his horror movies got it I'm, I'm I, not on I, your team I want less inappropriately motivated sex and what's all the language it's just it's just offensive <laughs> Man, now I'm now I'm that guy. Look, I just wanted to watch this with my kids. Okay, you know, there's a, not a single black person in this movie, guys. <laughs> Come on, unacceptable. Look, John, you can either take the the it's inappropriate from a conservative standpoint or it's inappropriate from a liberal standpoint. We can't take both. It's not that. No, not that much I, I can't be offended everywhere I look, either on from the left or the right. God damn it! All right. All right. Uh, my actual low light is just the beginning. I find the introduction to this film confusing. Yeah. I sort of scrolled back, even yeah. watching it for the third time, and was like, wait, who the fuck are these people? We start off with the sister, and then Katie shows up, and then they get the tapes, and then the tapes disappear, and then we are somehow watching the tapes that disappeared. Am yeah. I following that? That's correct. Correctly? That's absolutely I- correct. I watched this movie, so this this past viewing, I watched it with someone who had never seen a Paranormal Activity movie, and it must have taken me 10 minutes to try to feel through exactly what I thought was happening, even though I had already seen this movie before. Yeah. I I want everyone to know that the ideal situation to watch horror movies, I'm I'm definitely talking, of course, to the, the males in our audience, is you should watch every horror movie with your mother-in-law because that is Rich's technique. And I think it's born great fruit. <laughs> Rich, when, when, when we're done with this, you get, you get your mother-in-law's opinion on what her favorite was. And I'll see if I can get Emily's mother to watch it. And, and John, you do the same with Kim's. With okay. Kim's mother. Okay. See if we can get the actual mother-in-law podcast to happen. <laughs> this is, this is March man, man, the hunt, <laughs> the mother-in-law's greatest film. <laughs> Yeah, like, it's easy to find our favorite, but what is our mother-in-law's favorite Haunted House movie? <laughs> I, think, I think obviously it's going to be The Conjuring. But yeah, I guess, I don't have much to say about it. It's it's confusing as fuck for almost no apparent reason except to be like, hey, it's a paranormal activity movie. And it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yep. Fair enough. Can't argue so with that. Was, here's my question. Why are they filming their own editing sessions? <laughs> Good point. That's a that's a TV producer watching your watching your your found footage movie. Every every edit session in this movie is my low light. Um, <laughs> they basically serve no function except they take up time, which apparently they needed because the movie's only eighty four minutes long. <laughs> they're dumping exposition and they're making sure that everyone sitting in the cheap seats saw the scares by showing them over and over again and then talking about what happened. Weirdly, they didn't seem that out of place to me the first time I saw it, which I guess like says something about the the filmmaking, you know. But uh, like, okay, in order to just like pick a low light, I'm gonna pick the Back to the Future edit session. Yeah, the the scene where you know, like, let's say that this is like, let's say that this is like footage that you just found and you're piecing together the most important parts, or let's say that this is a documentary like the Blair Witch Project purports to be where it's like, Oh, we found this footage and we put, we tried to like compile together this version of the story. Why would you include this scene? Why would you include people talking about back to the future? 
you know, or conversations with their wife or what their wife thinks of things, you know, and then this scene so clunky. And then that, that very scene ends with the cheapest of cat scares where they go fishing through the house because they heard a noise and then the wife jumps out of, uh, out of the closet. Now, don't get me wrong. I actually do love the closet scare. I had jumped even the second time I saw it. Me too. Because, because their timing is really good and like the, the mask that she was wearing was good. Okay, but the um, third time, it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like the, the problem is that that closet scare would be awesome if it wasn't that so many of the scares in this movie were in fact cat scares much like it. It's just one of the best of the bunch. In short... To tie this all back in, you can't have a found footage movie that includes the people who are putting the film together being films talking about the movie that they're putting together. It's like a snake eating its own tail. It's It takes up way too much screen time. It's just bad storytelling. Yeah, totally agree. I think that this movie doesn't hold up to any scrutiny. And if you do watch the movie, God help you, three to four times... I don't think you're going to be very happy about the experience. And that's, that's where I'm at. I'm not even going to call out a low light sequence per se. I'm just going to say that watching the movie a couple of hours ago, I was completely not engaged until roughly the bloody Mary sequence, maybe a little bit before. I don't know. There's so much dry, sort of lame build-up stuff. This is a movie that, spoiler, I really like the ending. I really like the ending. But if I didn't like the ending, I think I would. this movie would be utterly forgettable. So that's, that's where I'm at. I, I sort of disagree with you there. Like, I agree that it doesn't hold up to repeated viewings particularly well. But I stand by the defense of this film that got it here in the first place, which is that this particular story and also this style of storytelling have really become a mainstay in the horror community for a reason. And I do think that this particular iteration is one of the strongest entries. It doesn't necessarily overcome the shortcomings of, of all the other you know contenders in this world. But I, I do think that, that when it does things right, uh, it does them better than than any other of the films that I can think of, at least collectively. It holds together in a cohesive way, and I do think it's a it's a good example. If someone was to say, "What should I see as a found footage movie?" then this would not be a bad one to to show them. Um, I mean, the first, in fact, I think it'd be a strong entry to show them. First Devil's Pass, then this. Oh hell yeah! Yes, of yeah. But, no, I mean, I think the other thing that is at least worth noting, because, look, like, I think we all see where this is going, but this is maybe the dominant franchise of the early 2000s. I mean, for almost a decade, you had a paranormal activity movie every couple of years, and they were all huge hits, and they scared the shit out of people. And I don't think there's any discussion about the fact that this is the best one, and it's not the first one, which is really unique. I don't think you see that in many other franchises. Probably Friday the 13th would be one where I would point to and say, yeah, I think probably uh, uh, four or six is, is my would be my pick for the best of the franchise. But 
by and large, people hit it out of the park, and then it's just diminishing returns ever after. This seems like a franchise where they found their footing here and really, in another way that, that other franchises have really failed, they were able to expand their mythology in a way that actually made the story richer and actually made you curious to know what was going on in a way that Halloween wasn't able to with the Celtic cult, uh, you know, and, the, and that sort of thing. So th- there, there are some pluses to this, John. I don't disagree with you that I don't, I don't particularly want to watch this movie again for a long time. But I also agree with Rich. If somebody was asking me, hey, I want to watch a found footage movie, what should I watch? I would think you could pretty much put this in front of someone and say, this is a, a really good example of how this genre can be done very well. All I can say is that if this movie were to somehow continue, I will not be watching it again, and I will not be recommending it to anyone. I am done with this movie. <laughs> John, I, I really I want you to watch it again, and I, I no. really do want to live stream it. I want to do it on Facebook Live or something. Like I want to watch yeah. you Come watch on, we can put it. it on Patreon. It, it would have to be a Clockwork Orange situation where you're holding open my eyelids. It's just John and a bottle of tequila and Paranormal Activity 3 <laughs> and a bunny. And I'm not even saying that I hate this movie. I'm just like, I am so over it. That's all. You know, like, I'm I, done with this movie. I want to hear John say something nice about it. John, can the you ending. tell us about the ending? Yeah, I think the ending is is just good. You know, just objectively good. No matter what you think about what, what comes before, we get to this point where they're at the mom's house and just somehow there's a weird tension. There's a weird suspense. You kind of know, even if you don't, and I will say to the credit of the film, there aren't a lot of obvious clues that tell us that the mom is the cult leader or a member of the cult or going to the mom's house is the worst thing you can do. But there's just sort of a sense of unease and it just builds in a very practical way where the couple are in two twin beds and it's a, it's ridiculous. And you know, the mom won't let them sleep in one bed and, and, and they're trying to, trying to sleep. They, they feel a disquiet and they're hearing loud noises and she, she thinks it's just her mom, you know, crashing around, but there's a car pulling up and they can hear like a door closing outside. And I think there's just a wonderful sense of dread and build up as you know, something, something bad is happening here. And it's not just footsteps in the hallway or, you know, the kind of nonsense that the paranormal one was trafficking in. Like there's something a little, little more, has more realism to it. It's that there's actual people. And as absurd on one level as it is, when he goes and opens a door and it's a dark room and there's like six people standing around in the dark. I think most of them, I think they're all female. It's a witch cult, right? And they're just like looking at him unperturbed, but they were just standing or what, what were they doing in this dark room? And I'm not even going to say it makes sense, but it's scary. And then they follow him. They pursue him back and the way they're walking in this hallway shot. They're just implacably like Jason or something slowly walking towards him in this human, but inhuman way. It's scary. It's like, you know, that the, the noose is tightening. 
And then, like, the movie just starts throwing crazy shit at you, which I'm never opposed to in a climax to a horror film, where we get uh, the the poor, the mother character is uh, levitating, probably already dead, and then they throw her body down the stairs and knock him down. And we see, clearly, if you want to look, that her wrist, her whole arm is bent in a terribly bad way, and... The assumption is she's dead. And the kids are... That's not the, not the best thing. What side are they on? I don't know. And the guy's maybe trying to save them or get them out. And, of course, the, the grandmother shows up. And maybe the idea is that the Toby evil spirit has become so strong, there's so much fear, that he can just outright kill our protagonist, and which is what he does. And it, it is viscerally awful, like the way his, his spine snaps and everything at the end. And, and then the kids just kind of, you know, meekly go up the stairs with Grandma and talk to Toby again. And you're sort of wondering, well, what were they afraid of at all in this whole sequence? If they're on good terms with Toby, I don't know. Uh, you can raise the question, like, there's some sort of marriage to Toby going on, but... but what happens like 15 years later or however many years later they're in their early 20s uh they're living normal lives Uh, christy has uh she's pregnant maybe in another sequel we find out what happens with that we know what happens to katie but you know there's certainly this very very disturbing these little girls are somehow at least one of them is going to be the bride of some kind of demon and it it, it packs a punch. So I like the ending. I don't know how coherent my, my, uh, my ramblings were there, but I I'm definitely like affected by the ending. It's got my attention. So that's, that's why I'm giving it props. I do want to point the other sister. I'm relatively certain is the, the story of part two of the series. Um, so I almost want to watch that now. You're, I mean, you're not going to like, <laughs> given the way that you feel about this film, I, I don't think you're going to like it. Um, <laughs> But yeah, Chris, but to be, I mean, part two is basically just kind of like a, a broader version of part one. So I definitely feel like part three was, was a step up. But anyway, just, just to answer that question, I mean, look, I, I agree with you. I think it's, you're talking about like most, you're largely talking about execution. It's a very well executed sequence. Uh, I'm not going to go through it again because I think you did a great job with it. It, it is, it does really draw you along. I love the coven of which is I also really like that shot and I don't know why it, it's weird. You look at it and you're like, yeah, this is just like someone turned on a light in a room um, and there's people in robes in there, but there is something really unnerving about it Yeah, and the look in their eye. I, I do wish, I mean, there's a few things I feel like fall a little short here. Like I feel like the, the, the mom, the mother's death and our protagonist slash camera operator's death is, you know, there's there's not much to it in terms of meaning. I do like that there was a scene earlier in the film where the grandmother was talking to the the mom and was generally disapproving of the the husband, who's our lead character. So that you feel like there's a there's a payoff when the the grandmother shows up again as a leader of this this coven. The thing I wanted to bring up, and maybe we mentioned this last time, is that there are elements of this that are reminiscent of a, a book called Head Full of Ghosts. Yes, I've, I've read that, yeah. 
that's about a pair of sisters who are of similar age. I think the older sister in that book is more like a teenager. But there is a really nice element where I believe it's Christy, the younger sister, has a strong relationship with Toby throughout the film, whereas Katie does not have a relationship with Toby, in fact, thinks that he's an imaginary friend, even though she's occasionally terrorized by him. So Christy's always in a friendly position with Toby, whereas Katie is not. And it's a a dynamic you see that that plays out in a few different scenes throughout the film. And I think it could have been more fully realized overall, and that would have made a stronger movie. But this is a nice conclusion to to that story. And I did want to flag a, a little scene that was sort of a honorary mention for for one of my favorites which was the the ending beat of this where there's a there's a haunting where the older sister is being terrorized and the little sister finally says i'll do it just let her go and there's an implication that in some sense christy has sold out her family to this demon and that is in fact confirmed in the final moments of this movie where she peacefully asks her sister to come along with them um, as they walk up the stairs and leave their mother and father lifeless on the floor beneath them and call Toby up behind them. So there is a glimmer of a deeper, more interesting story in here, but I'm with you that it, it really could have afforded to be threaded more fully throughout the film. It's a, definitely a glimmer, but yeah, it's, it's not really all there. And I will say I did notice that it's kind of cool or weird or surprising that the younger sister is the one that has the stronger connection to the evil or something, you know, and they're only a couple of years apart, but you would think if this has any kind of, has the weird, you know, marriage coupling, spawning dynamics, it's just odd that it's the younger sister and not the one that's closer to womanhood that would be the conduit i don't know yeah the ending is one of the strong parts of this and everything you guys cited is what's really creepy about it i like that there are this is one of the few scenes that has some ambiguity to it and it's just it's everything i was talking about that this is an example of successful world building three episodes into a horror franchise it's not something you see very often. I think that's I think that's exceptional. I'm okay with the movie having gotten this far, but we'll see if it gets any further. Yeah. Okay. So so Vic votes for Paranormal Activity three. I voted for Paranormal Activity three. Uh, John, what do you say? <laughs> the winner is, regardless of what y'all say, Devil's Backbone. <laughs> I mean, do I have to play that card? Because, yeah, I, I, you guys can do – you can record your own show, but I won't be there. <laughs> it's, our, it's our Paranormal Activity podcast. Yeah, have fun with that. But I will never talk about this movie again. You can we get some mileage out of that. Do you realize, John, we never kicked that around when we were doing our, when we were doing our franchises. It never occurred to us to do a Paranormal Activity franchise. That's true. I wonder why. I wonder why. Oh. Look, I even, I think I saw, like, maybe it was five, like, I just kind of after work one night went to one of these movies. I'm pretty sure it was Paranormal and not Insidious. And one of these random sequels, I was like, yeah, you know, that was pretty good. It was pretty good. I I know that I am not a 
aficionado or a connoisseur or an expert of this because uh, I do find it generally kind of a tedious form of storytelling. So not a huge fan overall, but I agree this movie definitely has its has its merits. So I'm not too pissed off about it getting here. I'm just like watching this movie and I'm like of all the Friday the 13th or Halloween movies that I could get geeky about. And I will say this, this, this does bear uh, noting guys. I haven't smoked weed since COVID-19 because I don't trust my own mind. um, How I'm going to react to all this stuff going on. So that might have made me enjoy some of these movies more if it all went well, but uh, that's not something that I've been, that's not a path that I've taken since hey. March. Hey, John, that's that's vital information, okay? We're getting John in withdrawal here. That's <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so, any thoughts like Devil's Backbone versus Paranormal Activity? I mean, is there is there an, a debate here? Is there any pros and cons? Like, okay, my vote is Devil's Backbone. Does anyone want to suggest that Paranormal Activity 3 might be more worthy? Just even if it's like just for fun? No, this is a no brainer. In the world of franchise horror films, which it's very hard to talk about horror films without talking about franchises, this stands out, I think, as something that is kind of exceptional, sort of in the middle of a franchise, which just doesn't happen very often. And so I'm glad we were able to talk about it and to talk about the things that made it sort of exceptional for what it is and what it's doing and the, the world that it has to work with. But I'm okay with putting it aside. I think there's, there's much more richness and, and levels to discuss. Although I would actually say, wow, this is it. I worked my way into it. Fuck. Paranormal Activity 3 is scarier than The Devil's Backbone. Anybody going to argue with me on that? No. No, nope. I, I, yeah, I, I think that you know an extension of that is that it's more of a horror movie than The Devil's Backbone is, which is hilarious because generally speaking, I am the guy of the three of us that would vociferously say I'm all about pure horror and I want the movies to be scary and I'm putting a huge stock in that and that's my number one criteria. But between these two movies, even though I will acknowledge what you just said, no, I mean, like, if you're going to force me to continue to analyze the same movies over and over and over, uh, no, I'll, I will take the less scary one in the, in this scenario. So this is great. John is giving himself shit. I feel yeah. like this is really the moment where I have graduated as a co-host. For- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we had a pretty vigorous debate earlier uh, about that whole issue. I mean, and I was I was definitely saying, you know, the purity of this process is that a horror movie needs to be scary, and that's that's number one. That's the paramount concern and 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 the requisite prerequisite of conversation and devil's backbone, you know, kind of barely sneaks squeaks in because it's not a scary movie. It's not even trying to be that scary. It's just damn good. Whereas I think paranormal activity is three uh, or any of them uh, for that matter. It's, it's just like, 
it's a tedious exercise. I want to do other things with my life. I would rather be doing laundry than watch the movie. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a big criteria. Paranormal activity three is only trying to be scary and not trying to do anything else. So this is revelatory guys. I mean, this is, we are, we are, as we're going through this, we are figuring out what the criteria really are for what would constitute the greatest horror film of all time, because it's not just what is the scariest. There's a lot of other elements that go into it. I'm casting my vote for the devil's backbone. And I feel somewhat humbled by this revelation, Vic, because yeah, I philosophically, I, I feel like I was on the wrong side of it initially. But, uh-huh, well said, and I agree. Well, John, I, I wake up every morning hoping to humble you in some fashion. So. <laughs> well, you humbled me in our fantasy football league, so there you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Rich, did you officially cast your vote? Uh, I did not, but I am voting for the Devil's Backbone. I will say for the record, I am still happy that I got to go through Paranormal Activity through a second time. I felt like it was worth trying to parse out the... The differences, even if it did raise a lot of grievances with us, I'm sure Tale of Two Sisters was a fine film. Um, I mean, I did see it. It was a fine film. But I'm still glad that we got a chance to chat this one through once again. I think it was worth our time, even though you never, ever want to see it again. I don't know how many times you guys saw it, but I have watched it three times for this podcast. That's too many. Fair enough. All right. Well, we will call it there for tonight. This was definitely an interesting debate, and um, I think we're all on board with The Devil's Backbone being worthy of further scrutiny, and some of us are totally done with Paranormal Activity. I'm eager to see what happens next. Next time, we're going to discuss Below which is uh, one of Vic's favorite movies of all time. And that's going to go up against The Innkeeper. So I think that's going to be a pretty spicy conversation. And I do know that uh, Rich is a huge, huge fan of Lena Dunham's performance in The Innkeepers. We're going to definitely get a good 45 minutes to an hour out of her two and a half minutes of screen time. (laughs) It's her finest role. There's a lot to (laughs) unpack. There is. There is. So for Vic Wheat and Rich Eckersley, I'm John Evans. See you next time. Adios! Adios!